this life was all I ever wanted. I'm not leaving. Not yet. I was hoping you'd say that. You gotta hit the streets, make some money. People like us must destroy people like him. Buckle up. Get Showtime free at Showtime.com. Revely, revely, dogs. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey, you degenerates. It's 420, and it is time for Morning Combat. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. I am one half of the hosting duo here. Joining me on the other side of the screen, he's the DJ premiere to my guru. Guru's dead. I guess that's not a great comparison. But nevertheless, you get the idea. It is the one and only Brian Campbell. Brian, yes, how are Luke, you, my friend? It's, uh, BC, want to hit you? That's what I do. So what you want to do, Luke? Me, I want to shoot. This is the best part of my week, Luke. And in this hamster wheel of the ridiculousness of coronavirus quarantine, I'm back on the happy side this week. All right, so let's start out with a little bit of a bang. Uh, this is the only show, of course, that hits the skins for the hell of it. Just for the yell we get. Mm, mm, mm. For the smell. Okay, sorry. Sorry. All right, you, took, you took a little long with that one. But nevertheless, I appreciate uh, your enthusiasm. Let's ride that bipolar wave of happiness for today's program just the same. First, however, Brian Campbell, some programming notes. As always, give the video a thumbs up if you're watching. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that notification bell. We also appreciate that when you do, trying to drive those numbers up. And then on top of it, want to make sure folks know... Listen, this is a Showtime production here, ladies and gentlemen. So do me a favor. You want to give Showtime a try? I got good news. It ain't that hard. Go to Showtime.com right now. You can have a 30-day free trial. That's all the stuff on there. You can just give it a whirl. You like it? Stick around. If not, hit the bricks. It's a pretty great deal, if I do say so myself, Brian Campbell. Absolutely. Uh, and also this show, pretty good value right here. It's free, okay? So do your part in subscribing <laughs> on YouTube. On, on if, you, if you're an audio-only subscriber, please hit that, that like, subscribe rate, whatever it is you, the young cats do these days. Uh, we want to keep doing this, quarantine or not. We're bringing the heat. Uh, Luke, we're going to have a little 420 surprise later, a little bit of a countdown. But uh, shout-out to everyone celebrating today, including our brethren over there at Showtime's um, All the Smoke, one of the hottest digital brands uh that we share the uh, ecosphere with what are you wearing today what is that i'm wearing uh my personal sponsorship of uh, ballsy.com you know that product they uh <laughs> they they provide the nut rub the sack spray the uh the ball wash uh they are they have outfitted me with plenty of men's hygiene products including this fine little acorn hat uh, i wanted to rock that today because luke you know we started off on the show we were buttoned up yeah we rocked the t-shirt and um and sport coat look to try to look a little classy, but nobody's classy during this quarantine. Luke, you fourth wall removal. I talked to you on the phone the other day. You're like, I don't think I've showered in five days. We're all in this together, Luke. So throw on a hat, grab a crappy t-shirt and let, let's jam. All right. I showered before the show, but that is usually a fairly rare occurrence. All right. Speaking of the show, Brian Campbell, let's get into it. Topic number one. 
Here's what we have for today. Reports suggest, I want to make sure I do my bit where I lean like a gangster. Reports suggest that the UFC is trying to host a show, Brian Campbell, on May 9th. And we don't know if it's exactly called 249 or 250. Let's start here if we can. Brian, I'll go to you first if I may. What is your level of confidence that the planned May 9 show takes place? Uh, I want to go as high as 95%. I know that sounds wow. absurd and ridiculous given the the statutes and laws and regulations, as we all should be, by the way, sticking with this, this safeness and quarantine. And yes, I waited in line outside Home Depot yesterday with a face mask for 45 minutes. It's part of the drill right now. So please, people in Jacksonville, stop getting nude and running out on the beach and, and uh, tip on tipping each other. But to get serious here, Luke, the reason why I have this confidence is because somebody had to be first. So what does that mean? Dana White wanted to be first in the sports space. And mark my words, when UFC finally gets back on board, you'll see boxing, you'll see team sports come back. Well, who was first in this scenario was the state of Florida a little bit more than a week ago, extending that essentially that olive branch to all of sports by making uh, pro sports gatherings essential for the economy, for entertainment, as long as they do it, of course, in front of, uh, you know, crowdless arenas. So the deal on this, Luke, is this. I don't necessarily believe that Dana will end up in Florida unless he has to because the infrastructure for Fight Island is apparently still being built, whether you believe that's a thing or not. But Dana White is going to have a meeting with the Nevada governor coming up. He revealed that during that conference call that we'll get to in a second. And Luke, I don't think it's going to be a matter of time before all of these states slowly adjust, not coming back like nothing ever happened and we fill the arenas, but soft launching, meeting in the middle. And I think what we've been saying from the beginning is Fight Island or not, the real Fight Island for me is the UFC Apex Center. Same thing for Dana White. I believe he's going to get that open for May 9th. Right now, the Nevada statute extends until an April 30th timeline of when you know, business, non-essential business people can't congregate. It only makes sense because Florida was the first, and people in Florida are cray-cray. We know this. Shout out to all the Florida men out there. Uh, I believe Dana White's going to make this happen. Luke, I'm not here on Team Dana White for, yeah, man, F this. You've been reckless, and you're our Robin Hood, and you're our hero. But the guy's been consistent this whole time. If he can get state commissions working with him like I think he will, it seems inevitable for me. See, that's exactly correct, Brian. I think that's the thing to focus in on. Like the UFC's troubles when Zufa originally purchased it and then they ran towards regulation, of course. That's a little bit of the Zufa myth. They were running towards regulation a little bit before that. But let's just walk with it for a second as a metaphor and a learning tool. When you do that, doors open up. It takes a little bit longer up front, but once they open, they kind of stay open. The, the, every time the UFC comes out with a subsequent statement, they get a little bit more reasonable each time. We'll talk about that call you had referenced in just a minute, but every time, if you read what was on that call and what Dana White is saying and what they're planning to do now, you know, it's a rush back three weeks after April 18th. It doesn't necessarily give you all the confidence in the world that everything will be above board, but the point is this. The doors are now open in Florida. They might be able to take advantage of that. You indicated Dana White's going to have a meeting with the Democratic governor of Nevada, Steve Sisolak. He's been pretty hardcore about keeping things tamped down. But the reality is, like Carol Baskin in Tiger King, what was one thing that separated her from her foes? It was her ability to pull the levers of government behind the scenes to lobby effectively. And her willingness to kill her that. spouse, Luke, notwithstanding, okay? Right, fair enough. He was not there to <laughs> for the roll call. But the point being is, 
they're able to do that pretty effectively. Now, does that mean the May 9th show will go off at, without a hitch at the Apex facility? I'm a little more skeptical about that. But as the UFC takes its time, as it irons out its protocols, as it takes its protocols to these elected leaders, be they state senators, be they governors, whoever needs to hear it, they get a little bit more reasonable, they get a little bit more careful, and their message gets a little bit more honed. And that's exactly what needs to happen. Convince the people with the keys to the kingdom that you've got a great plan. Spread the risk, so to speak, between the UFC and the state. Have better protocol. And then, and only then, do things make a lot of sense. They're on that path. So I think you're right. May 9th, Florida's looking most likely. But UFC in May in Nevada, Brian, if they can really get their message down, improve what they've been trying to do, and convince Sisolak to potentially get some kind of an exemption, I'm not. I'm not saying that's the worst thing in the world. No, call up, go, head down to the bar, get Mo Sisolak to sign that paper, Luke. Here's the deal on that. I've said it before. When is suddenly Las Vegas and Nevada the the bastion of of sanctity and hope in the combat sports space? They're not. If Florida makes it legal, the state of Nevada, despite Bob Bennett's comments last week, where he sort of said, "Look, we have no decision yet. We're you know we haven't we're not going in any direction." They're not going to let Florida become. Uh, savior is the wrong word here, but the sort of face of pro sports and combat sports, Vegas owns UFC. UFC owns Vegas. They go hand in hand. There's, they boom that Nevada economy. The same reason, again, I always reference it, why Floyd Mayweather was allowed to delay his jail sentence in 2012. Why? So he can do the Miguel Cotto pay-per-view and infiltrate the, the economy. Now, in this situation with a potential soft launch, the hotel rooms are not going to be filled up. The restaurants aren't going to be rocked open. But still, I would think Nevada's going to go, Florida's going to do this if we don't. This ain't a Tai Chi Palace uh, Fight Island backdoor deal. This is for real. It's legal again. Let's get on board. Let's do it right. Let's help them provide the right safety protocols. Let's not take potential hospital beds from COVID patients that need it. Let's do it all as right as possible. And guess what? You're going to have Disney and ESPN right on board. And here's where I will tippeth the ball cap to, uh, and that ball was a double entendre, the ball cap to Dana White on this. UFC 250, and I think that's what they're going to call it, Luke. 249 will live in infamy just like UFC 152 was it when Dan Hendo's knee and we blamed it on John Jones. This is a stacked-ass card. This is the equivalent of a first or second year in MSG, we want to make a bang, or UFC 200, we want to ridiculously load up the undercard. Uh, this is a strong move. I think it's going to make a large statement, and I do believe US, UF, uh, UFC will be back week after week from here, and it will be the beginning of launching back into the kind of normalcy, Luke, that I don't know about you and your precepts and your family, but this guy right here could, could use a little taste of that, as long as we could do it safely. Practice safe... Uh, Safety quarantine, Luke, a little bit at a time. Just a tip. Just give me the tip. That's all I need. You should, I, I've never heard of the Tai Chi Palace. It sounds like a place that owners of football teams go to get a little help. Uh, the Tachi Palace I've heard of, it's a little bit different. But to your point, there are still many other issues. Who's going to train the right way? How many people are going to be available? What about travel? It's not like getting the keys to the kingdom from Nevada, whether it be the governor, the commissioner, both, all of a sudden solves the problems. But as I mentioned, each incremental period where the UFC reformulates the plan, you can see that the plan slowly starts to get better and better. So let's keep going on that process. Let's keep trying to, yes, keep your eyes on the prize. But you'll see, you're seeing now that a little bit of patience 
I think is paying off both in terms of how we assess and spread risk, as well as wait for this virus in certain spots anyway to die down to make fighting possible. Now, Brian, I'll go back to you one more time. There was this call that UFC President Dana White had with the roster of fighters. He said any number of things on it. Folks can see the details for themselves. What is Brian Campbell's biggest takeaway from that phone call? Uh, Just this continuation of the foundational idea Dana has had throughout this, that the media is the enemy. There was specific language, and I believe it was MMA Junkie who acquired a lot of the details that we're all reciting that Dana straight up told the fighters the media is not your enemy, it is not your friend, it's your enemy. And because of that, Dana not even telling the fighters where the potential location is until they need to know, until the last minute. And that's certainly problematic. Dana's beliefs that by revealing it, it would lead left-wing MMA journalists, which is kind of really what he's saying, to you know submarine his potential ideas. Uh, no, we just nailed it for the last 10 minutes. You want to do it safe. You don't want to go to the Tai Chi Feng Shui Palace, Luke. Was that racist? I'll take that back. Um, You don't want to go there and do it haphazardly. You want to do it the right way. If it can be done the right way, we'll all join and applaud you and be part of this, Dana. That's the deal. So the idea that we're still going to live in a cloud of secrecy and try to stiff arm the media when, look, the media is... Like it or not, you've said this many times, the media is the UFC's promotional vehicle, right? That's how it works. We're not acting as promoters, but our coverage of their events serves as promotion at the end of the day. They need us. We need them. It just is what it is. Stop trying to act like, you know... I'm Darth Maul over here in my weird orange t-shirt and black hat. Um, I want to see fights. I want to report on them. I want to get excited about them. Yeah, sometimes we'll report on news that the UFC doesn't like and is unfavorable, but it's part of the deal. Stop acting like there's 25 Luke Thomases in an underground bunker being like, all right, what's Dana's next move? Let's, 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 let's put a halt to it. We kind of need fights to come back to be able to do our job, so let's cut this crap and all sort of team up and do it the right way. I guess my biggest takeaway from the call was that it was promotion to fighters. I believe management of those fighters was explicitly excluded. And I don't know if behind the scenes that they complained, but in the front of the scenes, I didn't see any of them bat an eyelid. Uh, It is amazing to watch when you look at the numbers coming out from the court documents from the fighters' lawsuits from Kung Lee, John Fitch, Nate Quarry, and others that we have a fixed position that we def- we have def- figured out. The UFC spends about 15 to 18% every year on fighter compensation. We now know that matter-of-factly. And so, yes, as the UFC's revenues have gone up, 10% of $100 versus 10% of 1000 means if you get that 10%, you get more money aggregately, but your share stays the same. All of that has stayed the same, which is to say if managers are getting their clients more money, In unusual ways, there's really no evidence to show that in the record. Here we have a situation where the clients are being asked to go direct to the promotion with the management pushed out to the side. And, you know, sometimes the managers are upset with the UFC. They give the old uh, media a ring. My phone didn't ring. Did yours ring, BC, with any manager calling you upset? I know a lot of media folks. Yeah, I know a lot of folks in the media who didn't get that call. So always kind of interesting to me to see. It's like I'm not saying there's no value to managers or that there aren't managers doing great jobs. But what that value is versus the cost, I think there needs to be some re-exploration of that. It's not clear to me exactly how good that is. All right. It's not exactly a 90s reference, but shout out to you quoting Axl Rose. Just all we need is a little patience, Luke, right? I've been walking the street tonight. 
Just trying to get it right. All right, well, I did that out afterwards. Sorry, I was on. I, I was hooked on a feeling there. Sorry, Luke. Yeah, you're making things weird. Don't make things weird, BC. All right, let's go to our second topic here, Brian. John Jones continues to antagonize Anthony Smith over how Smith handled the home invasion that took place. So the question here becomes, what does he hope to get out of it? I'll go first on this one, if I may, BC. I, I, look, on, on one level, rivals, people in the same division, former competitors, however you want to describe the relationship between Smith and Jones, going after each other, there's nothing particularly insidious about that by itself. It happens all the time in MMA. And, and in a vacuum, no big deal. And even saying things, you'd be like, that's a little over the line, which I thought he did, saying, hey, if there was... Um, you should get a gun or a mace, Anthony, because if the intruder was somebody like me, he'd have his way with you all night, as if to say intruders are the best light heavyweights of all time. I mean, Anthony Smith beat that guy within an inch of his life and probably could have done worse. He probably showed a degree of mercy, to be perfectly honest with you, with the guy. And again, in this really weird and unusual and frankly awful situation. So while it seems a little gross that rivals would go after each other, particularly for a sensitive topic like this, to be honest, in and of itself, I don't see any real, I'm not going to say issue, but it's not, it's not unusual. The really? thing that is unusual for me, BC, is the following. It's that we're dealing with a situation where John has more recently been in the arms of law enforcement uh, for having a somewhat disturbing incident, as we all know, sitting on the road in a car. Uh, again, these are all alleged, but we, there was body cam footage alleged to be driving uh, you know, while intoxicated, alleged to have a firearms charge. And all of this is not great by itself. But then when you realize the antagonism of Smith is happening afterwards, I get that probably maybe, maybe what John is trying to do, because we're all just mind reading here to a degree, is deflecting from that. But in the immediate need to deflect, it just doesn't feel like, and I'm watching this from afar, B.C., it doesn't feel like John really internalized that experience in any kind of way that I think some of us probably had hoped. My reaction when the news about John broke was that, you know, this guy, I would like to see him get some help to address these issues. And I mentioned he hasn't lost his wealth and he hasn't lost his health and he is still the champion. Like the time right now is to get in there and maybe those things are happening behind the scene. Again, I'll say it again. I am speculating, but it just seems to me that someone who was really absorbing the gravity of that experience I don't know that they'd be engaging in behavior like this. They'd be much more focused internally on themselves, and it feels like they're just whistling past that experience right away to get right back on the horse of what they were doing before. It gives me not great feelings, BC. Yeah, I mean, look, you're being incredibly uh, polite and sober even in your analysis of this. I don't know if it's some type of weird uh, thing because he tried to send you to hell that time, but look, the real deal here is that he's way off. And by the way, Shout out to everyone who took issue, I don't know if it was last week's show or the week before, when I'm like, hey, UFC, strip the guy of the title already. Send that message that the that the legal system doesn't seem to be doing. A lot of people are like, BC, what are you, crazy? It's just a DUI. How many other people in other sports, you know, did that happen to? Yeah, they get the rightful slap on the wrist, but you want to pull them out of their job? Uh, hey, guys. Um, he shot off a firearm while intoxicated, while driving in the middle of a town during a quarantine and said he was trying to track down homeless people and, and talk. I mean, like, it was incredibly bizarre. Then you package that with his past and prior history. I don't see how anybody can defend these actions 
rightfully so when this news came out with John originally, we're like, look, let's protect the man. Let's get him the help that he needs and stop, you know, putting the putting the ball back in his hands and say, go out there and fight. But his reaction here is so out of bounds to Anthony Smith here. Hey, John Jones, you should be sending Anthony Smith a birthday card every year for not taking an easy DQ win when you hit him with that illegal blow during that fight. In a fight that you dominated, the only thing is you weren't able to finish him, which is fine. Smith showed a hell of a chin. Smith could have backdoored you there and got himself a title rematch and got himself a title reign because of that loophole rule because of a foul John committed. Why would he go out of his way to attack Anthony Smith when Smith isn't even at the top of the rankings right now in line for a title shot? And it mixes in with what we saw from John post-arrest. We saw the initial public statement that sort of said, look, I got issues, I got to deal with them. And then a couple days later, John's back on Twitter sort of clowning with fans, making light of his entire situation as if it never happened. That shows you from a distance without being on the inside that here's a guy who's not only not taking it seriously, but why would you poke the bear in Anthony Smith in this situation? I guess it would be a little bit more understandable if it was him doing that to like a DC where you're like, look, they're always going to hate each other. It is what it is. This isn't even a guy that for the moment is on your radar. And, uh, you know, it's pretty insensitive for a guy that just fought off an attacker with his kids, wife and mother-in-law in the house in the middle of the night that you sort of go there. And I'm not softening up and saying fighters can't trade trash talk. Trash talk, I love it. The only time I got soft on that was when I felt like Connor was pushing so far with the uh, with the religious talk that some people on Habib's team might actually take a real shot at him, if you know what I mean, because they were going past that level. Short of that, I'm in on trash talk, and I love it. But the time is not now. And, John, you're really exposing yourself for – just not understanding the gravity of this situation. And maybe that's because no one has pushed you to a rock bottom yet where you have to make the necessary changes. But Luke, I'm, I'm surprised you were that polite, even though you really said what I said, just in a sober tone. Um, yeah, but here's else, the thing. What people say it's, this people man say have it's to polite. Stand on? What bone BC, BC, does this man have to stand on? BC, people say it's polite, but, polite, but it's not... I'm not trying to do John favors exactly. I'm just trying to say... Yelling at the dude, talking softly also, I suppose. I mean, I'm not in a position to like counsel the guy. All I can merely do is observe from afar and just say, like, how the hell is it possible a situation like this for the third time where you have a vehicular issue, let's put it mildly, and at least, at least two of them, at least, you know, alleged, because we'll have to see how the, you know, oh, no, he pled guilty, so it's not even alleged anymore, sorry. And so at least two of the three, and you could argue all three, involved some kind of substance abuse issues. It's like, dude, if that has happened in your life across now the second decade of your adulthood, right, the 20s and now your 30s, and the first order of business is, aside from the statement, to then go after a rival, as you indicated, who went through a traumatic situation, like, I'd be happy to have Anthony Smith in my house if something like that happened. I'd be, Anthony, <laughs> take it away, my guy. You got it. I wouldn't worry. I'd sleep very soundly knowing Anthony Smith was in my house protecting himself and, and my family if that ever, obviously ever came to it, some kind of situation. So... It's like, that's your first order of business. Meanwhile, this has happened. Like, dude, that was a friend of mine, absent antagonizing anyone else in the workplace. I'd be profoundly concerned about them. You add on this in the quick, short order, and it's like, I mean, I get that you don't want to stop living your life. No one is saying you couldn't stay in shape or, you know, talk to people or, you know, keep, keep that sharp competitive edge. Okay, fine. But an antagonistic edge over a human trauma after you already experienced your own personal trauma, 
it just does. It's bizarre. It's it just doesn't add up. And I don't really, I don't. I can I can sit here and condemn him all day, and and do the old Skip Bayless thing and tell him he's this and tell him he's that. Do I the suppose old that Phil makes, Mushnick, Luke. Yeah, I could be Phil Mushnick and just be straight up racist. You know, I could do all that stuff. I don't I don't know that that really is my position. I don't know really it solves the problem. All I hear him here to say is. I am alarmed at the incongruity of it all, given what just happened to him. And by the way, I'll, I'll pitch it back to you on this, BC. You think he's not on his on his you know, rivalry list? He was going back and forth with Jan because Jan wanted to fist him, <laughs> and he was going back with Dominic. I have less of an issue with that because they were just talking about it competitively. It's the weirdness of the Anthony Smith thing about a human trauma that I just found. Beyond the pale. Yeah, there's. it's just bad taste. Like I said, there's no leg or bone to stand on. Before we close, on, is you in my ear, Jay? Is that you? Yeah, yeah, it's Jay. Oh, all right. Um, Jay, award-winning documentarian Jay. He's got a lot of bad things to say about uh, the Bulls' last dance. We'll get to that later. Uh, Luke, um, do you have any <laughs> comment on, did you watch the extended John Jones police cam video from the police's uh, point of view where uh, John's phone rang in the middle of it and it looked like a booty call? I know this isn't your area. I just wanted to give you the floor. I did not. Way to bring the mood down, Campbell. Yeah, we were all thinking it, though, Luke. And that's sort of my role to put that out there, okay? Uh, Real quickly, just last thing on this. I'll pitch it back to you. Uh, Do you like that he is turning his attention to Blahovich versus Reyes? Given, Given that Reyes said UFC talked to him, they said they want to run it back. I'm not against it from the standpoint is like the knee jerk is we just talked about John Jones and now it, you can pile on and be like, and he's not even going after Dom Reyes. He's going after Blahowicz, which in theory looks to be certainly an easier fight. Although obviously shout out to Blahowicz's knockout ability. Here's the deal though. Dom Reyes, I thought he won that fight, but I don't think that decision was overly egregious. I don't think it was a robbery. I don't think it was the kind where you're like, oh man, he got screwed. You got to run this back. Similar to maybe to Leota Machida Shogun part one, right? In this case, Dom Reyes is a rising potential star, but he doesn't have a lot in the bank from demanding this. There isn't a lot of precedence where you have a close decision where the contender, the younger guy, underestablished, automatically gets the next title shot. No, he kind of has to go through one more fight, and then you can build to it. I think Blahovich is at a point where he's won too many in a row. It's time. He gets his shot. And what this ultimately does, Luke, is it keeps John Jones at light heavyweight longer, whether that's for good or bad, depending on your opinion on that. I've wanted John to go up to heavyweight forever. I thought he's basically cleaned out this division three times, you know, or two and a half times at the very least to this point. This kind of gives him the room to hang around longer. If he can beat Jan Blahovic, then you set up to a Dom Reyes matchup that would probably mean more marketing-wise, uh, you know, if you do it two fights from now rather than next. I'm not really here to say it's got to be Dom next. Look, he fought a great fight. Judges thought he lost. It is what it is. All right, that takes us to our third topic of the day here, Brian Campbell. This is... um. This is one where you need to have a little come-to-Jesus moment, my friend. You had told me, keep your eye on this Devin Haney kid. Well, we did. And he turned out to say some very, very, <laughs> very stupid things. I think it was on an Instagram Live, if I do, if, I, if the memory serves, BC. No, it but was this on a week, YouTube show. It was on a YouTube uh, show. And by the way, he's the WBC lightweight champion. He's 21 years old. So to a degree, you can sort of understand 21, doesn't know shit about the world. Fine. Whatever. Nevertheless, BC uh, says he would never lose to a white person, and this was in reference to a question about potentially facing Lomachenko. How much of a dumbass is Devin Haney? All right. 
it's a stupid comment. Um, it, it, it's, you know, he should have known historically not to do this. Why? Because Bernard Hopkins famously did this ahead of the Calzaghe fight. Hopkins-Calzaghe, really fun fight. Uh, flip it, decision at the end, split decision. Calzaghe beat him. There's egg on Hopkins' face. By the way, that was also like 2008. We're at 2020. It's even more unacceptable to say something like this. Why? Because if you flipped it and this was Tom Brady coming out and saying, I'll never lose to a black quarterback, you're like, okay, we got some major problems here. Yes, it's it's it smells like, like double standard racism. But I don't know, Luke. I, I'm not all that like mad about it. I don't know, because it's in the fight game, it's in boxing where stuff like this is allowed, it's a stupid comment, it sets you up in a bad way, but, you know, I've been the uh, the pudgy white guy in a basketball court before playing against people of other races and sort of get that look like, oh, this white boy ain't doing it to me, and uh, it kind of feels a little like that, even though, again, it's 2020 and this is bullshit, it shouldn't be the kind of stuff you say this is boxing, though. It, the stuff like this, you get away with it. I, I think, if anything, it just adds up the spice of a potential matchup here where Devin Haney, who looks like he has all the goods, and if you don't know his backstory, uh, he was a super prospect. Floyd Mayweather tried hard to get him to promote him. Every promoter had their opportunity. He ended up choosing Eddie Hearn. He's on the zone side of the track, so to speak, with that stable. But he got that championship under the WBC kind of without earning it because they elevated Lomachenko to that franchise super champion bs um he looks great we haven't seen him in a real defining fight yet but if this is a slow build eventually toward that although obviously teofimo lopez jr is going to have his say against lomachenko when we finally get back um it's part of the narrative to me it's just kind of dumb i'm not going to crucify him luke what do you think yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's like I'm not offended. Bec- I'm not uh, against it because I oh, let me find my pearls to clutch. I just find it stupid because it's like obviously wrong. <laughs> I mean, years ago, folks forget this. Before Chappelle Show was around, Chris Rock had a big show called The Chris Rock Show. It was on HBO, and he did a whole bit where he went to a bunch of gyms over in Brooklyn, and he asked all these boxers, this very qual- African American boxers, Latin ones too. Could you ever uh, lose to a white guy? And they all said no. And then they all said uh, Rocky Marciano would be the only exception to that, where you know he was a really good boxer. Fast forward, how many years it is? Twenty years later, and you just look around at the sport. And yes, dude, this is a sport. Clearly, clearly, the bedrock of the sport, both of its participants and its fan base, to an extent, its promoters as well. Uh, it's dominated by African Americans and Latinos. That's just a reality, and everyone should face it. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> this idea that it's like. You know, no whites allowed because they can't compete is just beyond absurd. And here's the thing I'm not going to do. What I saw was a bunch of people offended being like, oh, no, no, let me show you how dominant whites are. Where all of a sudden they're like, look at this Tyson Fury highlight. And uh, as you mentioned, Joe Calzaghe, who was the donk that beat Regis Progray recently? I forget his name. To all of a sudden... Yeah, to all of a sudden, you're like pulling out pages of Mein Kampf. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I'm not getting into the old stupid race war thing. I'm just going to say, he's 21, he's full of swag, he comes from a tough upbringing, as you indicated. I get it. I I don't hate it because it, it offends everyone's delicate sensibilities. I just can't believe, as somebody who is as clued in to the world of boxing as he is, would say something so matter-of-factly stupid. I mean, whether you want to call them Slavic and different white or whatever, dude, the Russians and the Ukrainians, they fucking dominate the sport just as much. So here's what I'll say to Devin Haney. Wake up, kid. You're better than this.
Wow, wow. Look at look at this Boomer Thomas jumping in here. Yeah. Old man yells at Cloud. Wow, right. wow. Jay not happy with that direction we took the show. Wow. Yeah, Jay okay. wanted us to bury the whites on that one. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, Jay. Take off your clan hat for a second there. Wow. All right. Uh, by the way here, uh, you know what? We kind of skipped a call here, or a question here in the rundown, uh, BC. I think we went ahead and got to it, Jay, if I'm not mistaken. Pull those graphics up. We're about to pull the fourth wall back on this one here. Let's see this one. I think we did it already. Yeah, the pandemic call. Want to revisit this one, BC? We fucked this up. <laughs> no, that was the original rundown, and then we, we moved that, Luke. Okay, this is a J problem, not a, not a Luke and BC problem. No, I think it's a Luke and BC problem at this point. We botched the rundown. Dude. How many shows is this? What, what, Jay, what episode is this one? What number? 39. It took us 39 weeks, BC, as you read your phone. No, because us- this was supposed to be Rousey. So why don't we hit that, Luke? Okay, this was supposed to be your girl, Ronda Rousey, okay? Oh, yes. So I'll pitch it to you here on the same. We don't have the graphic, but here here goes. Ronda Rousey said she understood the UFC's sponsorship policy as related to Reebok because what she had said was, hey, look, you don't see NBA players with Condom Depot ads. To which I say, Brian Campbell, how can somebody... How can someone with a straight face say that? I didn't hear that last part, Luke. Your mic dipped, but I think you ripped Ronda Rousey. Um, head movement, head movement. I don't. How could she offend so many people from one podcast interview with Steve O? Because she's. I mean, wrestling fans got taken down. Pro wrestlers, UFC. All right. Uh, the basis of her comments suck because she's the one percent. Okay, when that Reebok deal hit, it was favored and heavily, you know, pointed toward the extra marketable fighters who were able going to get more money. She's basically like, I was fine with it. It was great, right? And it's easier for her to say you can't put dynamic fasteners on the crotch of your football uniform, but you can have a Nike shoe sponsorship in the NBA where you get your own money wearing your own shoes from that. And in UFC, you're sort of been shut down. And obviously, it's hard to defend the UFC whenever you're bringing up fighter compensation and fighter treatment on based on the percentages there without a fighter's union of what they ultimately get paid. So in that sense, she's just kind of arrogantly wrong, which really sums up her entire existence. I feel like, Luke, every time she reemerges, we could make a, a spot in this rundown to sort of go, you see what Rousey said? Remember she was talking about getting in that ass? And like, no, I don't, I, I'm done. I told you that last week. I'm done. Okay. Well, here's the thing. This is the one where I guess it could be part of a wrestling angle. I don't know. But on its merits, as everything you've said, totally correct. I agree. On top of that, it's like, Understand something. The UFC deal originally that they signed with ESPN was for $1.5 billion for five. Now, they augmented that to seven after the deal started to go really well. We don't know how much additional compensation was included in the overall grand scheme of the deal. Plus, as we know, they get guaranteed money from pay-per-view, the whole nine yards. Imagine if the UFC kept their Reebok policy, but they split the, uh, the TV rev 50-50, right? Everything else as it was. No change, just change how you make money as it relates to television because NBA players, I think, get 48% or more of the money that they get from the league for those television deals. If that was the case and you had 500 fighters on roster, they got a little bit more than that, but just to make the math simple, for five years, every single fighter on the roster could get $125,000. No questions asked every time right at Christmas. Right, So the idea here is, yes, for someone like Rousey, who was in this elevated position where she's eating burgers and doing 
you know, uh, shampoo commercials and everything else like that, you can kind of understand a scenario where she might, it might not dawn on her that these opportunities are going to be few and far between. And that's a way to, I've always said this, one of the real the misfirings of this whole policy by UFC is that you actually minimize some of the complaints about fighter pay when you let them bridge the gap with their own sponsors. But okay, no one cares about that. In the end, though, all of the mechanisms that get NBA athletes paid where they can have their own shoe deal, they get 50% essentially of all league rev, including half of the television revenue, which is a billion-dollar-plus deal. Yeah, of course at that point no one needs Condom Depot. The only reason you would have Condom Depot on your back is either one, you're just a total shell for anything that will come your way for sales, which is possible, or two, that's the only sponsor you can get, man. And if that's the only one you can get, then that means it's a very, very valuable one to you, no matter how much uh, it may seem to be for us in terms of how small it might be. So kind of, I would say unbelievable for Rousey, but given the recent string of comments, BC. Let me, let's jump into that real quick course. and then we can get out. I don't want to make Jay angry. I'm sure you've got a couple other jobs. you got a, you got a hard out here, a hard on for your hard out. Um, is Rousey really that awful or is she just not who her stardom played her up to be as America's sweetheart and the ultimate baby face. And obviously we saw how she dealt with defeat and, and she's very, you know, she's very defensive and sort of sensitive in certain categories that we would have, that we were surprised about. Is she really that bad at the end of the day? Or is she just not who she was built up to be? Luke, be very honest here. Cause people love hate and Rousey. So there's both. There's both, right? Where if you get thrust into stardom, I think John Jones dealt with this early in his career. Remember the day he beat Shogun? He'd also captured the uh, the the perch snatcher, snatcher, you know, the same day. And so there's this whole idea that you're that they want you to be the hero to them. Um, we're all finding out now about Michael Jordan. If you don't already know, not necessarily saying he's the best guy, right? And part of the reason why he was so successful could be related to that, but. Here's the point. Yes, there's a yawning gap in expectations and reality, and I think that disillusions some people. There's this other sort of like general, she just doesn't seem to be aware of what the wealth she has means. So before this, she was saying, hey, we're dealing with this whole COVID-19 situation. You know, you should be able to live off the land and not be, not be self-sufficient and not worry about having to get to the grocery store. It's like, yeah, well, if all of us could afford <laughs> farmland uh and you know goats and shit and people to help us work and install that fine that's a great idea but that seems like you have to be kind of clueless about your own wealth and then here it's like yeah of course you don't want condom depot well, yes having condom depot on your back or you know royalpalace.com it's not a great look but if this is your small window to get money and that's your only sponsor, it's the best sponsor you could possibly have. And she does, doesn't seem to have sympathy or realization yeah. about the realities of that Lack position. Lack of self-awareness. The, the, the extreme example of that is when she you know, went after Floyd Mayweather for his domestic violence background. And at the same time, she was getting married to Travis Brown, who's got the same kind of thing. So, yeah, it is what it is, Luke. Okay. All right, all right, BC. Well, sorry about the number four, Jay. I'm just going to blame you anyway. We move now to point five. And BC, this was your little pet project that we wanted to do, so let's do it. Let's go through the top five albums of influence. Now, BC, you'll go first. We'll go five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. So tell us, number one, who's your number five choice? And so, well, I guess, and before that, what does it mean to have an album of influence versus top five overall? Yeah, I mean, look, if you're going to do what you actually think are the 
top five greatest of all time. You're probably most of us going to have, you know, Pearl Jam, Beatles, Led Zeppelin albums filling these out. But uh, in honor of 420 today, because look, tell me if I'm wrong. The best part about 420 is the way music changes you from the inside out. Luke, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, that's the best part about 420. No, the best part about 420 is getting baked out of your gourd. You don't hear Jimmy or a, or a guitar change. You feel it, Luke. It becomes part of your DNA, right? It's the, I said it's like a dog whistle to hippies. It just, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's something there, Luke. There's a, there's a conversation that happens that doesn't involve words from soul to, 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 to the audible. Do you get where I'm going here? Or am I getting a little bit double rainbow weird on you? One of the key benefits to drug use as it relates to marijuana is how it enhances art and the art experience. Thank you very much. So in honor of that today, uh, what's an influential album? It's, uh, you know, it's an album that certainly would con- contend in your top five or ten all time. But essentially, it's, it's, sometimes it's an awakening to a new genre that sort of changed course in your musical journey to be open to new things. Sometimes it defines a certain era or period of your time, Luke. Sometimes it's just an album that you've listened to 5,000 times because it was that good. It's sort of a little bit more general and open. And Luke, I've always said this. I don't mean to be too much. Jay, back back the F up, Jay. Okay, first of all. Second of all, uh, Luke, you can tell a lot about a person, certainly from their eating habits, and you know where I come from, but from their listening habits. I don't need to be a music stop here, Luke, okay? But you can tell a lot about a way a person is wired, how they get down, so to speak. You got it? You in with me? You ready for this? Come on. One? Come on. Let's do this. All right. Hit me with number five, Jay. Let's do this. All right. It's Exile on Main Street, the 1972 Rolling Stones classic here. Luke, if you're not well-spoken on it, here's the deal. It's in the midst of a five-album consecutive period that I'm literally going to put up with any band in the history of, of rock or, or popular music from just consistency, beginning with Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed all the way through Goat's Head Soup. The continuing thread in there is that's the Mick Taylor era, the blues English legend on guitar, on lead guitar. And here's the deal about this. What does this sound like? This is their most non-commercial, commercial successful album from this standpoint. Imagine if you took the greatest live band of all time, which at one point the Rolling Stones were considered this, put them in a sweaty French mansion basement, have them running from tax officials, have them all addicted to heroin, and basically having them staying up all night on 18-hour binges with a parade of celebrity session musicians from other genres and you put them all together there luke and they're high as balls and they're dripping sweat in 115 degrees and they're just making this soup of incredible influential genre crossing barriers on the surface exile on main street sounds like the best bar band you ever heard a boozy blues sound but the influences of gospel the influences of country rock are just incredible on this yeah it's got a couple hits you'll remember but it's largely non- easily accessible compared to the other rock radio classic rock hits that you've heard from them and what it ultimately defines to me luke is this luke you ever been on a bender you ever lived the rock star life for a while luke this is the longest number five explanation imaginable i mean you can argue this is the best segment we've ever done on this show but there's a point luke sometimes when you're in the midst of that you know you're going the wrong direction you know you're going wrong you know it's hard on your body and on your life and it's probably going to end really bad but there's a reason you keep doing it, because it feels so good. This music is definitely a soundtrack to that feeling, Luke. I can't wait to get through the day so I can get to the night, and this music really sums it up. Have you ever heard this, Luke? It might change your life. 
So here's my number five. I'll be a little bit more, uh, I'll use some brevity here. I'm, I slightly changed the definition of what you had asked for influential. I meant for my musical taste, how I arrived at the position that I am in today. Number five is easy for me. It's Helmet Aftertaste. I believe this was their second, perhaps third. I'm going to have to look this up. But this was the one where, this was following Milk Toast, I believe. This was the album for me that I, I, I had missed all of Helmet's previous work. And I had found this one in the summer, I believe of 97 is when I found it. And I had never heard a record that was, it was at the same time very cleanly produced, especially relative to Meantime and other records that were done by Helmet, as I discovered after the fact, and yet had this grittiness. And it was one of these albums where it opened my mind to the possibility of heavier directions rock could take, of what vocals could sound like, of how they could, songs could be long, short. It's, it's got clean riffs. It's got absolutely in-your-face powerful, dynamic lyrics. Um, it's just one of these moments where I realized I had been listening to sort of the softer end of things and there was a lingering inside of me for something that told me you could have a little bit more in another direction. Deftones, Bored, and Around the Fur were also like that as well. But it was this record and because the level of craftsmanship that went into the creation of the songs as you go through, and I, even today on my playlist, exactly what you wanted from this album, maybe one of my favorite songs of all time, just so perfect, a mix of punk, metal, um, uh, groove, thrash, and so you could go in myriad directions from it. It was this album that I began to explore different musical directions. You're number four, sir. I would, that's interesting, Luke. I hadn't been uh, woke to Helmet or listened in the past. And your breakdown of, of which genres they fall into, I'm going to give a little sample test for you, all right? Let's roll on because okay. Luke's clearly uh, angry at this point. Let's go to number four, Jay. Can you, can you show me here? Uh, Luke, indie rock, dad rock, call it what it is. But for me, this was my entrance into that. It was the 2003, the third album for the band My Morning Jacket. It still moves. Now, what's indie rock? It's basically at its definition like independent label, non-mainstream rock. But it's certainly become its own genre within the styles you're meshing together. And for me, uh, you know, I mean, I guess at its core, indie rock has some post-punk elements, some new wave. But My Morning Jacket takes the essence of what 70s classic rock sounds like and sort of ran it through the filter of indie rock. And when they came out with this in 2003, it's got a mix of genres on it, but at the same time, it just plain rocks. It might have the most beautiful song ever, ever written in Golden. Check that out if you haven't. But there's some haunting melodies and vocals in this from Jim James, the, the lead singer, that again, it's one of those things that speak to you on a level that you can't communicate with words. Um... This is a great band, and this was their absolute masterpiece recorded in a shed in the middle of the woods like all great rock and roll ultimately is, unless you're in a French basement on tax evasion high on heroin like the Stones ahead of exile. But Luke, if you're looking for a definition of the coolest groove within indie rock, which has really become the modern rock of what is cool, very few bands, Pearl Jam's one of them, is able to carry sort of carry their distinct sound into this modern time. Um, indie rock has sort of become the, the, the backdrop for all of us who love classic rock in high school this to me is the best example of it luke okay for my number four i will go with jedi mind tricks servants in heaven kings in hell this was i think their third or fourth album as well again i got to them late i did not know about some of their earlier albums violent by design and and whatnot but here's what i will say i was looking for some rap in the 2008 i had a producer of mine from my previous radio show othello was his name and i was describing to him the sound i was looking for and i was lamenting that there was nothing in modern rap 
like that anymore. He began to play for me Heavy Metal Kings, which is from this album, and I was blown away by the sound. I'm not a fan of horrorcore, but the very, very edge of that that leads in, that's kind of like a mix of gangster rap with with you know sort of like death imagery. It's 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 my wheelhouse. This was the hip hop I didn't know that I was missing. That when I found it. I finally found my home. And if you go back through the Jedi Mind Tricks catalog, I'm not even suggesting this is their best album, but this one has my favorite Sean Price verse on it. Rest in peace, Sean Price, my favorite MC on Outlive the War when he described himself as the beat Beastmaster Heat Clapper speaking the facts. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, verses uh, ever. R.A. the Rugged Man has maybe one of the best ever verses in protest rap on Uncommon Valor about the Vietnam War. It's just banger after banger after banger, and it's an underground record that, again, opened my mind to what was possible. It's how I discovered Army of the Pharaohs, Self-Titled, Apathy, Esoteric, and Beyond, Vinnie Paz, and more of them. This was a game-changer for me in my listening 20s. I am so grateful that this was the starting-off point for a new direction I was able to take. Very well said, Luke. Let's roll on to number three here, Jay. Luke, I'm going to hit you with one we all love, one we all know, and it's 40 Ounces to Freedom, the sublime classic. Here's the deal, Luke. I mean, this is the ultimate melting pot of genres mixed together, and it's and it's amazing, the idea of the sort of surf reggae rock mixed in with almost a rap sensibility in a very ska, punk, post-punk like like opportunity. But here's the deal. I came up through 60s classic, 70s classic rock like all of us in high school. We all got to the point where, yeah, we loved The Doors, we loved Led Zeppelin, we loved those classic albums. We listened to them ad nauseum to the point where we couldn't appreciate them anymore. We've all been through that. So I started to become a preservist in the late 90s, where I realized very early that Abbey Road was the greatest album in rock history. So I started to say, okay, I can only listen to this album like once a month or once per year on a holiday because I cannot get to the point where it sounds average to me. I need that feeling, that rush of just brilliance coming out of there. Why am I setting it up with this? I had weird music rules of how much I can over-listen to something until I heard 40 Ounces to Freedom for the first time. I believe it was the uh, summer of 98, Luke. And yeah, there was 420 involved. Believe that. And here's the deal, Luke. I listened to this on a loop over and over and over and over again, like 10, 12, 15 times a day. It was the first... uh, album that really allowed me that where it never worn out in fact to this day it's almost priceless to me it feels like listening to it like i'm hearing it for the first time luke and i think there's a a genius in what they put together maybe they didn't even realize that these guys are legends we all had the the album which followed this the self-titled commercial one but this is the real gold of what bradley newell and them were able to do and it crosses so many genres and it kind of was one of those where there's just no rules, you know, like, yeah, Limp Biscuit combined genres to a, to a point where you wanted to uh, do it all for the nookie and hang yourself. This right here, Luke, was just perfection in that regard. I mean, they touch on every sort of style. You can put it on at any time. It's amazing. Happy 420 to you, Luke. And I believe uh, they did a Grateful Dead cover on this album, Scarlet, Scarlet Begonia. Begonia. Is that yes. right? Yes, yes, they did. So for my number three, I'll go in a bit of a different direction. Now, this is not one of my favorite albums. Remember, the question here is influence, but this was one that helped me understand the 90s maybe better than any other album for hip-hop that I had heard up to that point. DJ Clue's first 
the professional. Desert Storm Records, 1998. Why was this so important? If you go back and look at who's on this, it has the cast of characters you would imagine. Diddy is on this. Uh, you have DMX, Dragon, Eve, Nas, Jay-Z, Cannabis, when Cannabis was still good. You had Big Pond. You had Nori. You had Flip Mode. I mean, you could go on and on. It was everyone. It was a who's who, essentially, of all the best 90s. And then, of course, it led into the aughts as well. But it also had more than that. It had skits. They don't do skits on rap albums anymore. And I realize that's very antiquated to say. But what I mean to what I mean trying to describe is this album helped me understand better things about what DMX's catalog was worth pursuing. And Nas, Nas was on this with uh, um, with Queen's song. I can't even say the whole title because it's got words that Phil Mushnick must like. It, 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 neither here nor there. It was just another way to a. It, it was a mirror holding up to the '90s, and it was also a roadmap to go and discover more from perhaps artists you might have mixed missed. There were subsequent professional albums. I think. DJ Clue made two or three of these. His influences certainly waned. He was tied kind of to that era. But when The Professional came out, and there's a song called uh, Fantastic Four, which has Cameron, it has Nori, Big Pun, and Cannabis on it, it is one of the best songs of the 90s in hip-hop. If What you're looking for are lyrical MCs. And it was, a, it was um, as I mentioned, a roadmap to discover more. I love it. I love it. We're going to move on to number two here. I'm going to hit you up with one of the best albums of all time, Luke, but very influential for me. Heartbreaker by Ryan Adams, his first soul album coming we, off. We listen to very different music. Coming <laughs> off, Luke, of the, the work he did fronting the alternative country band Whiskey Town, which I love. But here's the deal. Late 90s, early 2000s, right when this hit. I no longer believed that I could enjoy popular music. Yeah, I liked a little hip-hop on the side, some nice party music, but I'm still listening to nothing but classic rock. I didn't believe, you know, that indie stretch really didn't hit me till a few years later. I didn't believe you can do this. I always loved me some Bob Dylan, probably my favorite artist of all time. When this album came out, everyone, pre-early days on the internet, music magazines was saying, this is the new Dylan, this is the only one. And look, for, there's been a million new Dylans. I think this album is the only thing that's ever come close to it. It's a masterpiece of simplicity. Yes, it's a very dark and depressive record through a lot of ways, very, very post-breakup. But, you know, a lot of ways it served as a soundtrack to my life during these lost years and really opened me up to the idea that people in the modern age could could recreate the 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 folk and and almost country rock influences of the 60s and actually do it the right way and this was the album that led me to believe that again and eventually got me into indie rock and Ryan Adams has become kind of like Dylan so many different things from this album and trying out so many different genres just when you think you like that album or you like who he is watch out he'll come out with something you hate the next year but this to me is just him a guitar roots folk rock and it's 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 beautiful luke and it's and it's sad and it's dark and it's lonely and we've all been there luke and i i lived in this one all right i was you like album. you like sad white people music huh well i had some sad years and you do need a soundtrack for that luke okay i suppose that's true uh for my number two this one's pretty obvious from 1992 metal blade records tomb of the mutilated by cannibal corpse we all You've have been it, over luke. this it's a classic it is a classic. It's the third studio album. It's the last with the original lineup. It had Chris Barnes on vocals before he departed. Now, of course, Corpse Grinder is the um, is the lyricist and the singer. But here's what's important about this. This was 1992. This was their third album. This was the one that has their famous song, Hammer Smash Face, that was played on Ace Ventura. It kind of is their known calling card song, as it were. But again, I go through this music... It's not even one of my favorite records, because it's not, but this was the one that opened my eyes to what 
was possible with this genre. They're kind of the defining band in death metal. To you know, they're not really deathcore, but bands like deathcore and metalcore were sort of offshoots of what kind of Cannibal Corpse was doing. And again, this is why I like what they're doing. It's totally unapologetic art designed for mass. I mean, it, to, to absolutely just lean into the excesses of what they're trying to do times 10. Listen to some of these songs. Hammer Smash Face, I Come Blood, um, Split Wide Open, The Cryptic Stench, Entrails Ripped from a Virgin's Sea, Post-Mortal Ejaculation, Beyond the Cemetery, whoa, and whoa. so on and so on. These are the, And you listen to this, you're like, oh my God, this is horrific. Who could do it? But when you really begin to understand why they're trying to do it and how it, what it resulted in and, and to what extent, quite honestly, free speech ties into all of this, you begin to realize there are people who are making art that maybe you don't like, but they're making it for art's sake. They're not really rich off any of this stuff. They're just into it and they're doing it without apology and it results in art that is, you may like it, you may not, but uncorrupted, essentially. And that is what I'm looking for. I am looking for people who make art for art's sake, whether or not it results in commercial success, whether or not it results in adoring fans, whether or not it gets people to really into their message. I want people who have a message and either you're into it or you're not, but this is what we do. Um, Tomb of the Mutilated is the flagship for people who are into that. Wow, Luke, you, you seriously, you just summed up the spirit of the show with that whole rant. I can respect that. Go ahead, my friend. No, I'm I'm, I'm being legit, right? Uh, no, I think you're I think you're right. I think it's exactly correct. You don't have to love what we're doing here, but it is original. It is unique. My number one most influential album is this. I'm going to say it, and you're going to roll your eyes, Luke. But it's an interesting one. It's the 1981 live album called Reckoning by the Grateful Dead, which was reported, which was recorded over two concerts, including Radio City Music Hall in 1980, in which the Dead famously went on a year and a half run of doing an opening set, just acoustic only, almost like the precursor to Unplugged. And here's what it is, Luke. I listened to the, the 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 dead favorite hits a couple you know growing up, but I never was going to go into that pool dive in unless I was willing to go head first and sort of make it my life because I had a respect for the depth of their music and the the volume. So it was a point, Luke, where I wanted an entry point, but I said I'm not going to do it. I'm a completist. I'm a I'm a I'm a passive. I, I got passion, Luke. I got to hear it all. This, oddly enough, was not only my entry point to the dead, hearing some of these classic tunes in a very uh, harmony-filled, acoustic way. Some of these performances are not that out of line to those two famous dead albums, Working Men's Dead and American Beauty, which have a much different sound than, than their typical live sound. But what this was, not only an entry point for The Grateful Dead, but a change in my musical direction from traditional classic rock, and maybe the folkiest I got was Bob Dylan, to a whole avenue where I understood, brought in, and loved genres like bluegrass, Americana, country rock. And the problem with country rock is it's got the word country in it, Luke. Same thing with alternative country, which was a genre in the late 90s that this album spun me into. When people hear country, they think CMT. They think all of these, you know, bear in a heartbreak and a pickup truck crap. Obviously, it's a reference to real country, the classics, and it's, a, it's an evolution from that. And the best genre in the world, my favorite genre of music, is absolutely alternative country because it takes the roots of, of bluegrass and folk and pop and sort of meshes them together in a, in a very 
sort of modern way with a rock sensibility. And to me, this album was the one that turned me in that direction, going back to the Graham Parsons, the, uh, the, the, the birds, when they became a country rock outfit through the, uh, red, the flying burrito brothers. I don't get there unless I heard this one, Luke, and I know you hate it. You're going to roll your eyes at a bunch of long haired hippies playing acoustic guitar and singing in harmony. But this got me into something like Old and In The Way. People that are dead fans know Jerry Garcia's Bluegrass spinoff band. Um, it's incredible. The harmonies are beautiful, and it's everything I really want in music, Luke. For me, my number one, 1992, Atco Records. It was their sophomore attempt, Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera. I can't say enough good things about this record. Here's what it meant for me. If you were into... Master of Puppets, and then Justice for All. Pantera had a different sound. They came from a different part of the country. They had their own thing going. Yes, it was similar kind of groove metal, thrash metal scenarios, but the sounds are different. Here's what people have to understand. When 1991's The Black Album came out by Metallica, that was a pretty clear departure from what And Justice for All, Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, Kill Em All had sounded like. And it was massively influential for other people. It was massively successful. The band toured for what two plus years nonstop. It is a huge, huge record. I can't say anything otherwise. But it was it was a letdown. It was not what it was what folks had expected. And it was as you could recall, then the beginning of their journey into Saint Anger and my lifestyle determines my death style and all that kind of awful stuff, load that they had produced. Just nonsensical bullshit. 1992's vulgar display of power was what Metallica should have sounded like. It was it was uh, Vinnie Paul, it was Phil Anselmo, Rex, and Dimebag Daryl picking up the torch for that angry, in-your-face, again, to a degree, unapologetic, still groove, southern Texas that kind of a thing, really sort of masculine, aggressive music in your face that that yes, the Metallica boys were from the Bay Area, but it was that was that was what they were supposed to sound like. And the interesting thing about Metallica was you could listen to the black album and say, I'm not really a metal fan, but I like the black album. You can't listen to Vulgar Display of Power and be and be on the fence. You're either in or you're out, Bucko. And for me, I was 100% in. I am a metal fan. It is impossible to say, A, you are a metal fan, and that you don't like Vulgar Display of Power. And it's impossible to be a fence-sitter. And by the way, what was interesting about that album was it pulled people in who may have been fence-sitters previously. It is an identifying marker of a generation. It is one of the most important records of the 90s of, of that genre. And it is in my rotation to this day. It is an all-time classic front to back. Luke, I respect the way you framed vulgar, cannibalistic, hardcore metal choices under a sensible influence in how they have shaped you. I'm not saying I want to run out and, and, and make abortion rock part of my regular life, but I do respect you as a man, Luke. I now have a better understanding of who you are and how you came to be. I've been, I've been angry for a lot of my life, Brian, and this music helped me. Wow, it helped you get angrier, probably, but it also helped you find your own lane. It helped me. It, it helped me. It helped me enjoy that anger. I'll put it that way. It helped you find an un, your own unapologetic own lane to success, and now you're an independent star, Luke, who reaches into the corporate mainstream once in a while to put on this show under a very uh, individual freedom. And I, I'm part of that journey, and I love it, Luke. Okay. All right. With that in mind, we have wow, to you do have, our. You could not have no sold me more during this segment, Luke. Of just Ryan. like. 
Brian, it's 104, dude. We have got to get moving. I don't even want to be Jay, but I'm kind of being Jay. Uh, all right, let's do this. With that in mind, it's time for DMs from Donks. Do I have these? Did you guys send these to me? Send them to me now, or I can just read them on the screen. It doesn't matter. All right, let's do this. Put them up on the screen, Jay. Don't even worry about it. Just send them on. Look, you think they told Van Gogh to hurry up? You think that's what they told him? Uh, all right, from Jared H. Baker, BC. Two years down the line, who do you favor in a Lomachenko versus Shakur Stevenson bout? Uh, two years will put, what, Lomachenko, I think around 35 years old. We'd have to see uh, if he was able to retain the same magic of who he is now. He's already a little bit over his head fighting at lightweight. He has to take some punishment. We saw him get dropped by by uh, uh, that handsome fellow, Linares, that time. Shakur Stevenson is the one guy in this group of the guys who have next, the Teofimos, the Devin Haney's, etc., who I think has the highest ceiling, who I think most might actually be Floyd-like in the end because of his brashness mixed with his speed and his understanding of technique. Uh, two years from now, without really knowing who Loma is, I'm in, in right now Shakur's at 126. He'd have to move up to 35. I'll take Shakur Stevenson, but believe me, it, it'd, be, it'd be great, Luke. Let me ask you this, a bit of a different way to frame it. Let's assume that the layoff lasts, uh, not that life doesn't get back to some normalcy within a year, but let's say between all these interruptions and boxing having fits and starts, let's say that boxing matches are off for uh, roughly a year. Who does that help and hurt the most related to that, those two divisions, let's say? Uh, you know, it, bodies respond differently. Like, okay, so Lomachenko potentially with time off to rest any lingering injuries to recharge his brain and his body. Obviously, that could do great things. It also could just make him a little bit older. I mean, we've had this debate about, like, could a, could a long break help a Deontay Wilder who can go back in the gym and maybe learn some things and, and sharpen some tools that weren't there before because he hadn't had the time? It's really hard to fully predict that, but I think when you're putting age versus youth, I'm going to favor age on time off. Hmm. I mean, I'm going to favor right. youth. I'm sorry. I'm going to favor youth on time off that Shakur Stevenson just going to get better, quicker, stronger, faster. Got it. Okay, next, Jay. Let's see what we got here. bop da bop bop From Maxwell underscore Bishop. Hey, Donks. Did y'all catch the Last Dance documentary last night? BC, you want to talk about it here or after? Uh, might as well just hit that hard right here, right? Rather yeah, than, so, you know, because... So, so the answer is BC and I both watched it. We both loved it. BC, I'll tell you what I liked about it. One, I like how a new generation of fans are beginning to understand what Michael Jordan meant to our, our youth as, as teenagers and um, even a little bit younger than that. So it's good to that, that that's now being shown. And people are realizing he was, you know, you heard Michael Wilbon say there was Muhammad Ali, there was, what was it, Babe Ruth was the other one, and then there was Michael Jordan. You couldn't imagine how big a deal he was even uh, you know, with all the stories being told, you have to live it, and this gives you a chance to live it. I love all the side stories. I didn't realize, dude, Pippen signed a seven-year deal for eighteen million. Like, who was advising him on that? Was it the UFC his agent? Like, who? How was he so criminally underpaid? I couldn't believe it. It was cool to see him come up, and all these guys were not automatic. So, like LeBron was pinpointed as a star in high school from the I mean, even before age 14. Pippen wasn't like that. Even Jordan, to an extent, was not like that. They sort of matured into these guys, and it made them tough and mean. I love that. I love the oversized suits, BC, that don't fit, that they all kind of wore, you know? We all I just, I loved how it reminded me. Here's the thing I'll say about those Bulls. 
I grew up with a family, as you know, Brian, they were much more into the books than they were, you know, the, the baseballs or the basketballs. They didn't really, they were not, they were not sports fans. It, to the extent I've ever become one, I had to just do on my own. Even my older brother wasn't really into it. And I remember those 90s Bulls taught me to love basketball. Just to watch the excellence repeated over the years and to see all the different pieces, the Luke Longleys, the Tony Kukoches, and of course the bigger pieces of the puzzle, they taught a kid who didn't know anything about basketball what it meant to look like at its highest level, and it has created an enduring love for it even to age 40. Uh, I love that there's a holy grail element to this. When you read the backstory, ESPN did a good job putting out stories this week that tell this backstory that this footage existed of that 98 season, but yet was in locked in vault and only Jordan and NBA entertainment collectively together could approve it finally seeing the light of day. So it's the perfect timing right now, obviously with coronavirus to rush this out, but it, it tells such an interesting tale of, of management becoming, you know, overly prideful on on their role in putting together a great team in a, in a dynasty. It's crazy to look back and see how willingly uh, they were trying to break that up right in the middle of winning. I mean, t- how many times do we see franchises just try to roll the dice one more time with old guys to try to recapture that magic one more time? They were actually trying to break them up and did break them off after that 98 season, running off Phil Jackson and Jordan, and obviously Pippen finally got paid when he went to the Rockets for one year. Um, this is, I love it. It's brilliantly done. It's my wheelhouse of 90s basketball, certainly. But uh, for being so overexposed as Michael Jordan is, like, he's everywhere. We've seen, We've grown up with him. We've seen him everywhere. He's so underexposed from revealing his real self. And some of that has always been his reluctance to share opinions about politics or taking stance on race in the public eye. So we really only had like that Wright Thompson piece a few years back on ESPN that delved into who at this age is Jordan. You know, his Hall of Fame speech kind of peeled back that he's still that killer competitor on the inside who's holding grudges. The fact that they got him to approve this now, sit down, and then drop the F word like 18 times on regular TV, it's it's... Pull up my chair. It's top shelf theater. I'm with you. I'm not going to put out 86 tweets like everybody else. Oh, the greatest thing ever. But it is. I'm loving it. It's great. And if Jay had a microphone, and by the way, Jay is a talented documentarian. He would tell you about how the space-time continuum and the timeline, the herky-jerky nature of it, he didn't love that. But I did. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm agnostic on it. Or I should say ambivalent about it for now. There's been moments where I questioned it. But it didn't overall affect my enthusiasm. But we're only two episodes of, what, 10? So we've got a little bit of a ways to go on this. And you, the to get inside I'll, the mind of a, of a vicious winner, Luke, like, I love that ish, you know? Yeah. And by the way, people were, I saw on Twitter, people were like, who's the Michael Jordan of MMA? Nobody. There isn't. There isn't somebody who dominated the game so thoroughly, so consistently, not even St. Well, Pierre. Not Silva, not Jones. All of them have reasons where the and again we're talking about team sport versus individuals. The analogy falls apart. But even if you want to get specific about it, there's nobody that has that record of excellence. Jones has elements of it: the the talent, the ability to be pushed to the brink, but yet always come out on top. But obviously, uh, the you know the outside the the cage stuff, and it doesn't have that same killer winning like going after it at the same level as Jordan. But who does? And Jordan who, who, Jordan was a workhorse too. Yes. Uh, and the last thing I'll say to this BC is I know there's a lot of people who watch this show that are like, oh, I only watch MMA. I don't watch other sports. Dude, you're missing out. 
yeah. you're missing out. What you really like is athletic excellence. How could you not want to see one of the best in our life? I mean, when Muhammad Ali died, we all kind of felt it because he was a part of the culture wars with Vietnam and the draft and everything else. And he had this gift of gab. And oh, by the way, he fought in a ring. You know, that's a close cousin of MMA. People are interested. I get that basketball is not that. I understand. But it, it, once you really begin to see what sports is all about, and it's about athletic excellence, to, to miss what Jordan was, it's, you're, you're only hurting yourself. Yeah, the, same the people only who person go, who loses you know, is you. I only listen to heavy metal. I hate Roots Rock. No, you, you know, you're missing out, bro. All right? All right, next. Jay from Anvik. Have either of you ever been in a street fight or other tussles? Jesus, too many. If so, why and what were the results? BC, I've been in a bajillion of these. You? No, I, I haven't. Maybe, maybe that's not a surprise to, to my, my haters on here, but I've largely avoided fights. There's cer certainly situations I look back and I'm like, you know, man, I should have swung at that guy. I took maybe too much crap. I've thrown some drunken punches when friends have thrown me into garbage bags on the streets of the Bronx after getting out of a college bar. Thanks, Rich Vincent. I did. I hit you in the, sh in the shoulder, I think, a couple times. But no, Luke, uh, you know, I've done some boxing sparring, but, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've taken some, some bully shots as a youth, but I, I've never really gotten into the kind of thing that we're talking about here, Luke. Give me a street fight story involving you. I know I'm supposed to go watch that YouTube video of you describing seeing the greatest street fight story of all time. Oh, but, man. Uh, I, saw, I saw truly one of the great street fights of all time between two women in the D.C. subway. If you've never seen it, uh, the story, you can check it out on my YouTube channel. I was privileged that day to watch that ass whipping. That was great. Uh, I'd say my favorite one was um, a buddy of mine I, it's not principally about me. A buddy of mine got back from Iraq, and he his the way it was going. He had been there for a year, and he had three weeks off, and then he had to go back and do nine more months. And so he spent the three weeks with us because his parents had moved to South America at the time. And um, you know he was not doing okay, right? He was not doing okay, but he wanted to go party. So what am I going to say? No. So we went, and um, I'll never forget. There was this uh, woman outside this bar tending to her drunk friend. And uh, they were both white. That's relevant because this dude came by, an African-American dude, and uh, he was laughing at the two women. And uh, she goes, shut up. And the dude was like, don't ever tell a black man to shut up. And then begins to like push her, like put hands on her. So we kind of were like trying to break it all up. And then my friend, the one who got back from Iraq, he wasn't having it, bro. So the other dude was like, get your hands off me. And my friend... Um, you know, had some words for him that he didn't like. Some Devin Haney words? I'll never lose a street fight to a... Something like that. And uh, so my, this dude swung on my friend. And when that happened, I didn't realize this, but this dude had friends all with him. So they swung on my other friend. They swung on me. Eventually, we all kind of realized, what are we fighting for here? This is stupid. Let's break up the commotion over here. We actually kind of... One guy got off me. I choked another guy, pulled him off. We all kind of agreed wow. to a truce. Oh, yeah. We all kind of agreed to a truce. And then I look over, and I'll never forget this... My buddy who got back from Iraq, his knuckle game is ferocious, okay? I look over, and the dude who had started all of it was sitting like on his ass uh, up against a fence, and my friend was unloading on him like Phil Baroni did Dave Manet, right? I mean, just one after the other. And this dude was just sitting there, just getting... I mean, his face was... 
pre-cell phone was a, cams. His face was a right? pizza, dude. His face was a pizza. He was a mess. Then my friend takes the pallet that was covering the downstairs, pulls the pallet off, and is picking this dude up by his shirt, blood just pouring out of his face, oh. and was going to chuck this dude down a flight of stairs. I look around. If everyone knows anything about D.C., I was in Adams Morgan, which is just, I mean, teeming with people. I look around, dude, and there are, I'm not kidding, hundreds of people looking at us. And I'm like, dude, the cops are going to get here any second. So I grab him by one collar. I grab my friend by another collar. I'm like, dude, we have got to get the fuck out of here. And we race up the street of Euclid Avenue. Um or you could you could street anyway, and uh, we get to the top of the hill. We're kind of away from it. My friend's shirt is covered in blood. He just takes it off. He has a wife beater underneath. That's got trickles of blood on it. I'm like, I think we should go home. He's like, No. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna wait for the crowd to go away, and then we're gonna go back to the bar. I am not here for very long. I may not be back. We're gonna get drunk, <laughs> and we went back to the bars with him with blood on his wife beater, and nothing ever happened to any of us. That is one of my favorite stories. Wow, look, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot in that story, but we don't have the time to uh, for me to follow up. Maybe on a yeah. spinoff. Here, show here's day. my thing. I always tell people this, dude. Everyone thinks they're Billy Badass, but you don't know if you're messing with a guy who just got back from Iraq, who's been in a million street fights. Don't fuck with people. That's, just that's don't. Been just part don't of my- do it. That's been that's been the theme of my adult adherence to getting in sort of these like somebody bumps you type of deal. It's like where's what's it worth? When, when that guy could be Hoist Gracie and you're on a cell phone YouTube video for life getting choked out and peed on. I mean, like, you know, like, whatever. Right? Right. Look, I don't need to be wearing a wife beater with blood on it and go back to the bar, okay? I'm, I'm happy in my COVID basement. Can we, let's, let's keep going here, Luke. All right, next. Worst date you guys have been on. <laughs> VC, you want to go first? Uh, you know, I don't have it. I, I mean, huh. Depends on how much I want to share. Yeah, I got some pretty bad ones there. But uh, one time, though, Luke, I was on a second date, and we were in a, a restaurant that had a dance floor, and they were setting up, okay? Oh, no. And I was sort of like, they started playing 90s hits, and I go, oh, my God. And the girl, like, jokingly was like, oh, you're going to go out and dance? And I go, unless the next song is Good Vibrations by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, no chance. It was the next song, Luke. So I had to go out there and... Uh, <laughs> Hey, do do a little do a little white guy uh, white guy bust. Were you were you like this like? Mm. I, I had a cabbage patch a little bit and uh, eat my words there, Luke. Oh, she paid that night though, so that was that was pretty nice. You know that yeah. there's some uh, there's a women's right. You know. Yeah, um, I've had some bad. I've had some. I've had some bad ones. This one's really easy. This was back in the uh, what do you want? What was it? Uh, Plenty of fish days. Was that the name of the site? I can't remember. It's before I met my wife. Uh, I got set up on a blind date, and I'll never do that again. So I show up to the bar. Oh, but tip: always meet over like coffee or a drink. Never for a meal for the, for a blind date. Thank God it was a blind date, and I, don't, I she I couldn't tell if she was just weird or trying to sabotage because within like a minute and thirty seconds of sitting down, it was nonstop, relentless talking about her cats, and this was happy hour, so the sun was still out. So I remember after one drink, I went to the, bu- the bathroom and I was like, I think I'm done here. I think I'm done here. So went back to the bar, plopped down. What was it? I, I think it was, two, it was uh, two cocktails. So I think I plopped down like a 20 and a 10, just enough. And I was like, listen, this has been great. Got to run. Didn't say one other word. Wow. Marched out, 
marched out and left. And I was just not going to have it. I was just not going to have it, bro. That's very just, just, better just off dead of you. Remember when John Cusack went to pick up that girl on the date and she's like, we don't both, we both don't want to be here. So, uh, it'll yeah. cost you $13.95. You just give me Look, a check now. You know, I didn't, I didn't stiff her with the bill. I didn't insult her, you know, to her face, but here's the thing. We got to move along. Once we get to 50,000 subscribers, I will tell the audience about the story of a different buddy of mine. That, that was an army buddy of mine who got back. By the way, a ranger, true story. I'll tell you the story about a different buddy of mine who got back from Iraq, a Marine Corps buddy of mine who was in my unit. Um, it is one of the most wild and insane stories in DC nightlife. I, I, I guarantee, BC, you've not lived life like we did. We got thrown out of so many places and got into so much trouble. It is amazing I'm still talking to you today. So you get us to 50,000 subscribers, I'll tell that story. We are very close, Luke. We are very close to that, so keep subscribing. All right, All right we got any more of these, Jay? we got to fire through these because we're running out of time here. Uh, from Z Frosty uh, YZ, favorite conspiracy theories? Um, the UFC definitely paid Houston Alexander uh, not to fight Kimbo Slice aggressively <laughs> in that fight, thinking, hey, we may have something here with him. I'm going to go to my grave believing that. I'm not accusing anybody outright, but uh, go back and rewatch that fight. Is he really that scared of Kimbo? Really? You can't shoot for a takedown? Really? Hmm. You know what? I don't. I don't think I have any favorite conspiracy theories, BC. I know that's a lame answer. Oh, I got many. I just don't want to out myself as too crazy, Luke, okay? Yeah. I think most conspiracy theories are uh, irredeemably stupid. I think most people who can take them seriously have mental problems. No, no, no. So, oh, you know what? It's I don't believe it, but I've always thought that, like, wouldn't it be cool if the Loch Ness Monster was real? But no one gives a shit about that anymore. All right. All right, Luke. We got any more of these, Jay? Is that it? Is that it? That's it? Wow. I think that's it. All right. Yeah, BC, it's time for Have hey, You Seen This Shit? Take it away, good get sir. Get right into it. We scour the globe. The best, the worst, the ugly, the good, the bad in between. It's Have You Seen This-ish. Let's do it. Luke, we always start off with a knockout, so let me give this to you. The lady's name, Barbara Shogun Nalepka, fighting in Poland in Warsaw. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, I like the I like the netting at the bottom of the uh, ring there. Very Valley Tudo of them, yes. Look, this, this promotion's called Ladies Fight Night in Warsaw, Poland. How? Wow, Hiawatha! Look at this, Luke. Oh, she ducked into it too. Wow, switch kick, switch, switch, switch the switch, brain yeah, off switch, on that Switch one. kick knee because she actually threw a kick in the end there. But yeah. All right, let's go to uh, Russia. I think this is Russia. Look, it looks like a nondescript Eastern European place. Check out this kickboxing finish here. Uh, first, we're going to see an early knockdown. I, I love. I had pants. action figures as a kid that looked just like. I them. like how they're wearing NBA breakaway pants from the nineties. Yes, 90s. exactly, exactly. Where are we right now? Inside of a warehouse? I'm not sure. Is that is that Sean Gannon in the back? Is Kimbo up next? Well, this and, is Fight Island. Yeah, I think so. And oh my God, good night, dude! How did the ref let this continue? He was clearly. I like how the account is CTE Society. Yeah, that that's great. <laughs> uh, we can't stay here long. Hey, let's move on here. Speaking of funerals, Luke, these guys are getting a lot of love on the internet. Please tell me you've seen this. A million times, of course. The best way to send off your boy post-death partum is, is to dance him into the grave, Luke. What is, is this staged? What's really happening here? Is this Africa, Luke? What's going on? Uh, I don't know where it is. It could be parts of... Oh, oh no. God. Oh, no. Oh, just leave him. Just leave. We, we'll take the L. It's over. Just walk away. It's a yeah, walk the worms, the worms will get him. Just let it rock. Just uh, let it rock. I mean, it's not, it's not like it hurt him, Luke. We got to be honest with that. But uh, <laughs> all right. Hey, uh, 
Hey, so a lot of fighters are spending their quarantine, Luke, uh, training in different activities. Here's Aaron Pico doing a little bit of a dressage, a little dance with the horse. But Dude, Luke, look, as, at the, look at the hose on this beast. Look at the unit on that guy. Remember I told you that story about being in the Nets locker room when Cliff Robinson de-pantsed in front of three women? It looked a lot like this, Luke. <laughs> I mean... She- I didn't, I didn't, uh, wow, look at, uh, what's the name of this horse? Lex the Impaler? <laughs> is, that, is that Tyrone style, Philly style? I mean, wow, all right. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize Tommy Lee had changed so much. Uh, hey, Luke, let's roll on here. Uh, how about an unfortunate name? There's a prominent businessman in San Antonio. Do you want to know what his name is? Check out this headline on this story. I didn't believe this was real. From funeral services to food delivery, how dick tips be... <laughs> Luke, would you take milk from dick tips? <laughs> Jake, Dude, how, go to how the does next... this guy just not go, my name is Richard, you fucks? Can we go to the next one? I mean, look at that. He's a, he owns a funeral parlor, Luke. Concerns over grave sites. Oh, oh dick. dick tips. What a dick. All right. Um, Luke, here's what I got for you now. Uh, Jim Fails. You love him, Luke. We all love him. Love How Fales. about this hard man getting down on the bench here? Um, I'm sick of people setting up a camera while wearing a hole in their crotch on their pants. What is going on here? Oh, to the face. Oh, to the, the face. face. All right, you know what? That's what he gets for pumping the rep to begin with. Fuck right. that guy. Luke's got another job, so let's go from here. Uh, check out this horny Hawaiian grandma, Luke. I picked this just for you. She's holding her granddaughter's hand. Oh, whoa, a little, little swipe action there, Luke. You okay Wait, with that? What happened? With that? Well, check it out in slow motion. Oh, my God. God, the grandkids are watching. What is going on here? Yo, she's just out of Fs to give, man. Wow, grab them cakes. Okay. Uh, Luke, we want to shout out all the healthcare workers, including uh, Mrs. Webscream that are out here worldwide um, helping us get through this pandemic. Check out this trickster with his tribute. He's got a clip attached to that napkin under the wine. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Luke, this. Uh, you got any? Yeah. Whoa, whoa. Hey. I'm, I'm going to imagine he's not like Pico's horse. <laughs> you got any tips for this guy, Luke? He's got one for you. Wow. All right. Thank you. Thank you, healthcare workers. All right. Luke, I want to show you the greatest. Not We show a lot of weird knockouts in here from all different martial arts disciplines. Check out this shit, Luke. This is the greatest knockout of all time. Oh, that's pretty good. That Dude, that's a video game. That's a friggin' video game. Finish him. I mean, one more time at this. Jay's telling me it's a capoeira kick. Is that true? He's had experience. It's like, with a, your it's like a backwards rolling thunder. Oh, it's amazing. Could you pull that off in the UFC? Maybe Michelle Padeda can, Luke. Anything is possible with a, you know, you haven't seen it for a reason. That is hard. That's a badass knockout. All right. This next one's uh, sent in by our producer, Gaffney Pierre. Shout out to Gaff. This is uh, some yeah. dude out in the cul-de-sac just taking people out. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, this is uh, this is Devin Haney's uh, vision of things here. Oh God! Because this oh, dude, God, this Who dude just munishes these white boys. He crush. Oh, he crushes oh. them. And then the mom comes out. Yeah, get the oh, oh. oh soccer kick to the back of the skull. I don't like that, Luke. I didn't sign off on this. Hey, buddy, this don't mess with people. Yeah, that's the thing. It's don't a, it's don't a be simple like Luke's rule, friend. man. Don't uh, mess with people. Don't wear a wife beater to a DC Look, bar. Here they come. Two on one. 
They ain't got shit for this guy. All right, Luke, let's go outside the grocery store. You just never know who's who's the real, who's the real man, who's tough. Check out this grocery shopper with the bags in his hand. Oh, you got beef with me? You got beef? Check out this stick of beef, right? Oh, my God. Oh. 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 Jesus. He didn't even have to put the groceries down, Luke. This guy's the best. That dude is like the best Instacart shopper ever. Is he wearing a... He's like, yo, uh, I got to get these strawberries to Sally. Yeah. Get the yeah. fuck out of my way. Hey, Luke, Bye I want to... Oh, one more time for the people. Oh, chin And check. these are arm punches, too. Oh, yeah. That dude was like, oh, I'm all tough. Hit me again. Okay. Hack. What do you think's in the bag? What does a badass like that buy, Luke? Donuts. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Toilet paper. All right, hey, let's... I want to show you the quarantine MVP. This is my superhero. Check out this guy on the motorcycle... I saw he bounces this. a beer can off the sidewalk, Luke. No, no, no. That's like a two-liter filled with Mentos. Is it? Yeah, look closely. Bonk. See? The timing on this is incredible. Where's Dude Perfect? This is amazing, Luke. Yeah, this is this is a true act of stupid brilliance. Yes, thank you. Uh, but it's definitely a two-liter. I, mean, I don't know if it's got Mentos in it, but it's definitely the two-liter. All right, I'm going to tee up the final segment here, Luke. Tip on tip has been a theme on our show. You and I, you know, we've touched the fingers to make a joke. But you know the reality, Luke. We're both consenting heterosexual males. There will not be a time, 100,000 subscribers or not, where you and I would nakedly touch tips, right? We're not that kind of men. Nakedly, so, Luke, not nakedly, fucking all the clothes in the world. We're not, no. Yeah, so here's the deal. I want to show you how other heterosexual men are teasing the tip-to-tip revolution. You tell me, yay or nay, on whether you'd be willing to do this with me. Here we go. Play the first one, Jay. It's not... Uh, that okay with you? If we didn't have a lighter. Okay, okay. I'm I, I'd pull that off. I'm okay with this. Let's go to the next one here, Jay. Check out these uh, these Pit- Pittsburgh Penguins players. You lick the tip and then you touch it. You done with that? No, fuck these losers and fuck the okay. Penguins and their fans. Okay. Go Caps. Okay. C-A-P-S. Okay. Caps, Caps, Caps. Uh, let's go to the convenience store here. I'd be down with this at any time, Luke. You need help, Brian Campbell. Okay. All right. I, see, I thought that was fairly hetero. All right, let's go to the next one here. Uh, I think these are Braves Did you? fans. You think it's fairly hetero to touch your shit like that? Oh, no. No. Nope. Touching, touching nope. tips of the tomahawk? No? No? Just, okay, okay. Let's go to dessert here. Uh, this one's a little bit questionable, probably. Oh, whoa. That, <laughs> I forgot about that one. Uh, Luke, the, see, the hand on the cheek is, is where we're going in the wrong direction here. Luke. Also, just hand me your cigarette, shit face, <laughs> and I'll do this and give it back. All right, now dessert. Now we play dessert here, Luke. Tell me if this is too far. Oh, God. It's a chocolate covered banana loop. Don't think it's anything else. Are they are they toasting? I don't know. I mean, look, some people get down like this. That's fine. I I just don't think this is our future. And to close, Luke, how about this one? Would you be down at least for this? Check out these two dicks. (laughs) That's the one I'd be down with the most. You have to do you have to do the fifty thousand subscriber show dressed like this. It it might be pot. No, that's a, that's a hundred thousand dollar request. Come on, I'm putting my career reputation on the line for that, Luke. All right. Are you? Are you? Is that what you're doing? All right. You've seen that shit. Let's roll on. Let's end the show, okay, Luke? 
All right, with that in mind, uh, let's see. Odds and ends. BC, what do you got for us on odds and ends? Uh, this is somewhat late-breaking news. Uh, I want to give our, our condolences to Tony Harrison, you know, the former junior middleweight champion. His father and trainer, Ali Salam, succumbed to a uh, COVID uh, a case mm. there just, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, you know, shout out prayers and love and thoughts. Tony Harrison, great guy. Met his dad and trainer many times. Former fighter himself. Tough to see that. Also, an odds and ends, Luke. It was a rough week for WWE from the XFL folding, going bankrupt, to a couple other financial blows that ended with mass cuts on the roster. Some people putting out videos crying on, on, on social media. Certainly it touched your heart if you're a wrestling fan to see under these circumstances people getting let go. But don't forget this. It's competition time between WWE and AEW. Vince and company were stockpiling people that they didn't know what to do with just to keep them from the enemy. For people like Gallows and Anderson and even my guy Zack Ryder... This is a, a dream come true. This is an opportunity to maybe go across the street, whether that be AEW or New Japan, and find out how great they can be. Luke, WWE's great, but you got to understand you got to play by their rules. It would be like if we did this show for Showtime, and they're like, I know you're the, the dick tip guy, but I'm sorry, you're no longer that. Here's your new persona. Here's your written lines. Here's how you have to act. I couldn't live in that society, Luke. Neither can some of these well-talented performers. Now they're going to get a chance to show what they got, Luke. I know you couldn't live like that. No, uh, certainly. Well, we'll see what happens with that. I don't really care. Uh, in terms of my odds and ends, we missed it last week, but Friday, I believe, was the 10-year anniversary of the Strike Force Nashville brawl on CBS. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, why was that one such an ender of all worlds, whereas the one we had between Connor and Khabib seem to only suggest that the rematch would do big numbers. And there are meaningful differences. It's always worse to be the first one to do this versus the second. Back 10 years ago, MMA was kind of an experiment for the big networks. Now it's sort of much more embedded into the mainstream. Three, these guys, Connor and Khabib, had a heated rivalry. You weren't altogether surprised that there was a, uh, something afterwards, whereas this one kind of blew up out of nowhere. One was on pay-per-view, one was on TV. I'd also say that people were harder on Strike Force at the time than they are on the UFC. But I guess the good news is, Brian, you can have a brawl now with a big audience among MMA fighters, and it's only good news. Yeah, I mean... The Conor Habib one had the, the potential of going into the crowd, and that's where it gets bad. But they, I always thought this was so overplayed. And um, I mean, I work for CBS now in Showtime, so shout out to them. But the viewership they were able to get during that stretch on CBS was huge. And I get Gus Johnson in the moment going, gentlemen, we're on live TV, we're on CBS. But here's the deal, like fights and trash talk and extracurricular fights part of the game it fuels it yes it's different when you're crossing certain levels or you're going into the crowd and all that but contained within a cage which they were somebody wants to sucker punch somebody else um it kind of fuels the next fight i thought they got a raw deal in that being sort of the see we told you these cage fights you're watching if you're one of the seven million or whatever people that turned into cbs that night you're watching it to see two cage fighters fight the fact that their their boys would jump in and like it's it's it was so overblown in my eyes luke okay yeah, and it was Shields who was supposed to be who fought Hendo that night. That was supposed to be Hendo rocking him up, and in the end, uh, Hendo loses. That was when Jake Shields then went to the UFC. I think fought Martin Campbell and then GSP. So, not a great night in the history of Strike Force or MMA. But at least now you can take comfort that if this happened again, wouldn't really be the end of the world, would it? Um, okay. 
Ryan, I guess that's it for us. It was a bit of a up and down show, but I'm glad we did it. I'm keeping the train on the tracks, and I'm pretty happy with it in the end. Look, I'm going to counter that and say it was a great show. Your attitude during it was up and down, but the content was fantastic. <laughs> all right, as always, give the video a uh, thumbs up. Below, you can see all our information as it relates to social. Subscribe to the channel, folks. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that notification bell. I know there's no MMA happening. There's plenty of morning combat happening, and we need your support. We count on it. We appreciate everyone who's done that. You can follow BC on Insta and on Twitter. Same for me there as well. Okay? All right. Go check out Brian's work at CBS Sports. We're back next week. We'll have videos on this channel all week long. So thanks to all the people who make this show possible. And until next time, may all of your gains be loyal.